This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Robots Radio presents... In 1985, director Robert Zemeckis and star Michael J. Fox gave the world a time-hopping trip that careened right into our hearts. In 2020, we finish out season two with America's most popular whiskey. The film is Back to the Future. The whiskey is Jack Daniels. And we'll review them both. This is The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 1985 classic, Back to the Future. I've never seen purple underwear before, Calvin. Calvin, why Why do you keep calling me Calvin? Well, that is your name, isn't it? Calvin Klein? It's written all over your underwear. Brad, we have made it to the end of season two. I honestly, I'm very impressed that we've made it this far, Brad. We are talking 64 regular weekly episodes to get to this point. And Brad, I think that we have both grown so much in what we've been doing on this podcast. And I honestly think that if you feel the same way as I do in any way about this movie today, that all of our skills that we've honed will be put to the test talking about this film. Well, I think they might. And I I am a little curious, Bob. These are mostly movies that you've seen before. Maybe there was one or two that you hadn't seen, but this is a list that you've, you know, you put together and we're kind of going through it together. I'm kind of curious, though, in the last 64 episodes, well, 63, I suppose, what how do you feel like you've changed as a movie viewer? Honestly, it's been really nice to have a conversation with you about these movies. Some of these were movies that over the years I had an appreciation for. I think that they're movies that everyone should see. And I think talking with you about some of these movies really helped me clarify my own position on them. Movies like 2001, which is a film that I never really liked, even though it's considered by many to be one of the greatest movies ever. I think it's made me feel a lot more secure in my opinions being able to talk to somebody like you who's seeing it for the first time and and who sometimes is, you know, divorced from the context of 50 years of movie history. So it's been really nice to kind of be able to get comfortable in my own skin and say, I don't care if that movie is a classic. I don't think it's very good, you know? Yeah. And I, I think that today's movie, um, I, I'm really excited to get into Back to the Future. But I was I was doing a little bit of research and I saw like two or three days ago, Screen Rant posted that James Gunn recently tweeted that two of his top five movies that he would consider perfect movies are are have been done on this uh, podcast. One of them being Back to the Future, the other one being Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Oh, interesting. And you did not like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind even one little bit. I I quite so hated it, Bob. <laughs> it was not good. I will say this. I, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to admit this to you, Bob. It was better than Paul Blart 
mall cop. Too. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah, I was really it was worried. A, it was a better film than that. <laughs> well, today we're looking at Back to the Future, and this is a film that, Brad, I don't think that's the first time I've heard someone describe it as perfect. This is a movie that has a screenplay that has been talked about for the last 30, almost 35 years now as a perfect screenplay by some people. And full disclosure, this was not a movie that I had on the list initially. About a year ago, Brad said, you know, we should think about getting some other more popular movies on this list to kind of break up just having these classics. And what would you think about putting Back to the Future on the list? And I said, that's a great idea. It's been so long since I've seen any part of that movie. And watching it this time, Brad, I have to say it was quite an experience. Yeah. So this is a film that, you know, we usually ask the question, Brad, have you seen this film? I have seen this film before. Uh, This was probably, I would say, my third to fourth viewing of it. Um, I saw it a few times as a teenager. Maybe the last time I saw it was like freshman year at college. So, yeah, it's it's been a while since I saw it. And I remember thinking to myself when I recommended it that this is a movie that's that people just love. Like it's one of those films that everyone seems to love it. Everyone seems to support, you know, watching it again and again and again. And beyond that, I've heard a lot of people make this claim that it's a perfect script. And I was like, man, what better movie to put on the podcast than, you know, something that has such a claim behind it. So here we are, uh, 64 episodes later, and I, I think we're ready to dig in. I think we are too. And before we dig in, we always have to start with our favorite segment on the podcast, which is called Brad Explains. Now, Brad, I have to uh, let you in on a little secret here, and that is that I don't think I had ever sat down and watched this movie front to back in one sitting before. This is a movie that I'm so familiar with that was on TV so much when I was growing up that I've probably seen the whole movie in bits and pieces. I've probably seen parts of it dozens of times. So I was really familiar with every beat in the story, but I'm in the unique position, Brad, that you're often in, which is that this was my first full viewing of Back to the Future. So I'm excited to hear you get into Brad Explains, having seen this movie before and and being so familiar with the plot. So Brad, can you break down the plot of Back to the Future? Yeah, so Back to the Future is about a teenager named Marty McFly that is uh, constantly late to things. And it's about how he's friends with a uh, old scientist played by Christopher Lloyd. As as John Mulaney would describe him, a disgraced (laughs) nuclear physicist. Okay, that's what was going through my brain, but I wasn't going to say it. I was like, no, I can't rip that off. Yeah, so he's friends with a disgraced nuclear physicist named Doc Brown. And Doc Brown, lo and behold, learns how to travel backwards in time or forwards in time. Um, However, in order to do this, Doc has to get some plutonium and he gets it from some what he calls Libyan nationals who he promises to make them a bomb. But he doesn't make them a bomb. He makes them a mishmash of pinball parts. And when they're testing out the car to try and travel in time, the Libyans come and they shoot Doc Brown and Marty has to jump in the car and he hits the magic number of 88 miles per hour and he travels backwards in time to the 1950s. And while in the 1950s, he goes to find Doc Brown to try and figure out a way to get him back to the future. (laughs) And in doing so, he runs into his parents. He screws up how they meet, which leads to the fact that he is going to disappear because if they don't fall in love, then he is never going to get made. 
So the movie follows Marty as he tries to assist his father in wooing his teenage mother. And it gets complicated when the mom starts to fall in love with Marty instead of his dad. And all the while, Doc Brown is trying to find out a way to get a lightning bolt to hit the DeLorean, which is the time machine, so that he can travel back to the future. And all sorts of shenanigans ensue. This is one of those movies that I feel like you could really get into all the intricate details of the plot. But at the end of the day, it's a pretty simple plot. It's a time travel movie. Boy goes back in time. Boy has to figure out how to get back to present and also not mess anything up in the past. That's I mean, that's pretty much the whole movie. Yeah, no, that's that's a much better, (laughs) much better version, (laughs) much, much cleaner. So here's the thing, Brad. I don't know how much longer I can go in this podcast without divulging my true feelings about this movie, Um, because I think that it's just your true colors. Exactly. Shining through. So here's the thing. Lots of people love this movie. This has an 8.5 on IMDb. It's in the top 40 on their top 250 list. This is a universally beloved movie. I feel like it is especially beloved if you grew up with it. If you are a child of the 80s or even the early 90s, this is one of those films that people will not hear a dissenting opinion on. And unfortunately, I'm still going to try to give a dissenting opinion because, Brad, I actively don't like this movie. Bob. So here's the thing. It's not that I want this movie to fail. I was watching it last night and I was just like, oh, my gosh, this is a really flimsy script. It is not the perfect script it's been made out to be. Um, A lot of it has not aged well. And the way that they present the characters is in the silliest way possible. And Brad, I am already preparing myself to hear the feedback we're going to get on this episode. But I, I just can't pretend like I think this is a good movie. Bob, you're so freaking nitpicky. Like, you you take a movie like this that's just fun. Just have fun with it, Bob. It's not like, you know, the plot actually matters or the fact that uh, <laughs> the main character almost gets raped a few times and that there's a lot of casual racism going on. Uh, just leave that be, Bob. Stop being so nitpicky. Right. Bob, I... So am I, am I picking up on the, <laughs> on the same vibe then, Brad? Bob, I... I remember liking this movie a lot as an 18-year-old, you know, but uh, I was watching this movie yesterday, and I was just blown away by how bad it is. Like, and it made, it genuinely made me sad, and, I, and I'm going to out myself right now. I th- This might sound really bad, but I am an avid hater of the 1980s. I, I I genuinely think it is one of the worst decades to have ever existed. When you look at it from fashion, when you look at it from movies, like from all sorts of different, even from music, like there's some good music from the 80s. Don't get me wrong. But like, I've never understood the whole Prince like phenomenon. And like Michael Jackson is great, but I, I some of his stuff I just don't understand. So like. There's just so much stuff from the 80s that I am not a fan of. And for a long time in my heart, Back to the Future was like the holdout where I was like, yeah, but like Back to the Future was a great movie. And, you know, everybody says that it has a perfect script. So I kind of held it in my heart as like the last defense, the Helm's Deep of the 1980s. (laughs) And upon watching it again, I was just majorly underwhelmed the the movie's not great no it's you not know, it's tr- it, it's charming i will give it that the movie is charming and michael j fox's performance is really great i i, I think he has some 
some cheesy lines that he's given and some of the looks that he gives the camera are just way overboard and he's chewing up scenery. But I really think that the reason people love this movie so much is because Michael J. Fox, he's just so charming in this film. But outside of that, ugh. So, Brad, knowing that we are pretty much alone in our opinion on this movie, I feel like we're going to have to spend a lot of time justifying why we dislike this movie. And I think I'm prepared to do so, but I don't quite know where to start. So do you want to start talking about the performances? Do you want to talk about Robert Zemeckis's direction? Do you want to talk about Robert Zemeckis's script? This is the second Zemeckis movie that we've done on the show. Last season, we did Forrest Gump, a movie that I also have some issues with, a movie that I also think is way too cheesy. A movie that I also think the characters can sometimes be a little cartoony. And I feel like with this movie, every problem I had with Forrest Gump is ramped up to like the nth degree. I don't think any of the characters in this movie behave like human beings. It was it was infuriating to me to watch these people behave like cartoon characters. And I think I came away from this movie wishing that it actually was an animated movie. Like if Zemeckis had did... You know, Who Framed Roger Rabbit as this movie, I think it would have been a way better movie. So, Brad, I mean, you can already hear me complaining about Zemeckis, but where do you want to take this conversation? Well, I will say, you know, don't be going after my boy Forrest Gump too much because I I genuinely think that Zemeckis did a great job with Forrest Gump. I, I think that movie came a long way from where he was here with Back to the Future. But if you want to know more about that, go back and listen to our Forrest Gump episode. As far as Back to the Future goes, I I guess I'll say this to start. If you haven't seen this movie in a while, go back and give it a watch. I I think you'll be surprised if you pay attention to the dialogue and how characters deliver lines and just just the overall plot. There's a lot of issues here. Um, But to start, honestly, I think we need to start with the script because this is a script that for some reason, people have attached onto this and just given it this this claim to fame that it is a quote unquote perfect script. Obviously, we all have our own opinions and stuff, but it's hard for me to believe that that anyone could think that this is a perfect script. There's so many issues with it. And I was kind of curious, Bob, what like, you know, you're a little bit more of the film expert of of the two of us. Why do you think people give it that title? So I'm going to make references to some nerdy stuff here. But um, at one point, I don't remember what episode it was, Brad. I brought up this point that I once heard the writers of the show South Park make, Matt Stone and Trey Parker. And they were talking about how when you're developing a plot, you always want the plot developments, the moments of story that are happening to basically say A happens, so B happens, right? And how a, a badly written script is kind of more like A happens and B happens and C happens. The things don't naturally flow into each other. And I think with Back to the Future, the thing that people point out is that every action in this movie has a payoff. Every scene has a consequence. A always leads to B in a logical way. And so I think when we're talking about, I guess the word would be like, it's a very economical script. Everything in there serves the plot. And there's very little fat on this movie. There was a book that came out a few years ago uh, called Save the Cat. And it was really, really famous in Hollywood circles for a while because it basically said, here's how to write a script that will get picked up by a movie studio. And the author of this said, by page three of your script, your protagonist needs to have a moment that he called Save the Cat. 
You need to see your protagonist climb a tree and rescue a cat because it establishes a moment of action in the minds of the audience and blah, 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 blah. And I feel like this movie could have inspired Save the Cat because, yes, I think from a logical standpoint, this movie is like structurally very well put together. There's no fat on it. You learn everything you're supposed to learn about the characters through dialogue, through action, through scenes that are blocked well. The problem that I have with it, though, Brad, is that I think a script can be structurally put together in a perfect way and still be a bad script. And that's what I get here. I feel like if you listen to the dialogue that these characters are forced to say to each other, it is like a horrendously badly written script. And just because the scenes flow together in a natural way and there's no excess on it doesn't necessarily make it a good script in my mind. Well, and just to clarify, a script is literally everything that happens on the screen, right? So it's not just the dialogue that people are saying. It's also the direction, the blocking directions of like Marty walks from the tree to the car while saying his line, right? It's it's all of that stuff combined. Not necessarily. So, some Some scripts are more like they give more stage direction like that. Especially you'll find that to be true if the director wrote the script. So like in the case here, Zemeckis co-wrote this script. I don't know how much of those specific directions they put into the script. Um, so sometimes that's more true than other times. But basically the script is, you know, all of the dialogue you see on screen, the order in which it's put together and the order that the story unfolds. OK, so when we're talking about a script, then we're, we're talking about the dialogue and what people are saying. And we're talking about like how they do their things and how they move through it. And while this movie moves people through things well, I, I'm just sitting here listening to the things that these people say. And it's just stupid <laughs> most of the time. And like, yes, there's certain one liners that are that are kind of funny. I chuckled when. Uh, Michael J. Fox said, man, Doc, that's real heavy. And Christopher Lloyd goes, heavy, heavy. What is it with this term? Is is the Earth's gravitational pull messed up in the future? And I'm like, oh, OK, that's, you know, that's kind of funny line. It's a little bit of an eye roller. But then there's other times where where George McFly, Marty's father, slams his hand on the table and he goes, Lou, give me a chocolate milk. And a chocolate milk just comes flying out of nowhere and he takes half of a sip and slams it down and sloshes it over everybody. And you're just kind of like, did, did we really decide to just do that? When Marty tries out for the Battle of the Bands and his girlfriend goes, don't don't give up, Marty. Your your mixtape is is wonderful. It's so good. I'm never going to get a chance to play in front of anybody. Marty, one rejection isn't the end of the world. Nah, I just don't think I'm cut out for music. But you're good, Marty. You're really good. And this audition tape of yours is great. You've got to send it into the record company. It's like Doc Yeah, I know, saying. I know. If you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. And I'm like, this is just stilted and bad and boring. And speaking of the perfect script, I was bored in this movie for the first 25, 30 minutes. I really thought that that setup took forever. And it was it was poorly acted and it was poorly directed. Like when Marty and his girlfriend are walking around the town square, you like as a moviegoer, I feel like you're kind of conditioned to know when something's happening that, you know, is going to get a payoff later. And like when you see a hand come into the frame with a jar collecting coins for the clock tower and they make a huge point of it and they like shove a flyer into the camera that says save the clock tower. 
Save the clock tower. Save the clock tower. Mayor Wilson is sponsoring an initiative to replace that clock. 30 years ago, lightning struck that clock tower and the clock hasn't run since. We at the Hill Valley Preservation Society think it should be preserved exactly the way it is, as part of our history and heritage. There you go, lady. There's a quarter. Thank you. Don't forget to take a flyer. Right. Save the clock tower! I'm like, oh, I wonder if that's going to get a payoff later in the movie, because they try to play it off like it's a really minor thing. But you just know, based on the way that it's directed, based on the way that it's over the top acted, this is supposed to be capital I important. Right. And even in that scene, you see his girlfriend, uh, I, I think her name's Jennifer. She writes her number down for her grandma's house and writes, I love you. And you see Marty look at it and he kind of is wistful about it. And then later, this leads to a super cheesy line in the dialogue when he when Doc Brown from the past is asking him why he needs to get back to the future so bad. And he's like, oh, I got this girl. She's amazing. And he goes, oh, is she crazy about you? And he goes, oh, yeah, look at what she wrote. And he shows her this this note that just simply says, I love you. <laughs> and I'm like, come on, bro. Like, like, you, you got to give me a little more than that. Well, so that's the thing that I really struggle with. You know, Brad, I feel like you're you're pointing out both writing flaws and directing flaws. That moment with Crispin Glover playing Marty's dad where he orders a milk, that's a directing choice. That's a choice that he made as a filmmaker that I don't feel like is necessarily the choice of the screenwriter Zemeckis, but they're both at fault here. Both both sides of Robert Zemeckis are at fault here. And the thing that I really have trouble with with him as a writer is this idea that the 1950s are so far removed from the 1980s that he makes everybody in the 50s behave like an idiot. He makes them behave in such a cartoonishly dumb way. And, you know, it's one thing to say, like, people in the 50s wouldn't know what a car in the 80s looked like. Yeah, I get that. But people in the 1950s were not Neanderthals. Like, right. they could use context clues to say, oh, this big metal object with four tires that's driving on the ground is a futuristic looking car. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. Like, even if somebody in the early 1980s, before we really had mobile phones, saw one of us walking around today with an iPhone, they wouldn't know what it was at first. But after watching us speak into it and use words like hello and goodbye, like they'd be able to tell that's a cell phone. That's some sort of a phone that you can carry with you. And what really pisses me off about this movie, Brad, is that Zemeckis makes the characters stupid and he treats the audience as if we're dumb enough to just buy into this as well. And that's what really, really bothers me about it. Nobody in the movie behaves like a human being and I'm expected to buy into the world that this movie is creating. Right. Well, everyone is just a caricature of of like a stereotype of a person. You know, his mom is this cute, young, teenage heartthrob girl that's just fun. And his dad is just this, you know, this nerd that doesn't know how to talk to girls. And Biff is this big, tall, strong, athletic guy that's the town bully. And he makes, you know, he makes George do his homework for him. And his his mom, when he's in the past and uh, Michael J. Fox is at his mom's house, her dad is is just kind of like you said, he's like a Neanderthal. He's just insulting everyone and he's mean and he's only concerned about the TV and I just everything about this movie. I, I think you you put your finger on the right point. Nobody acts like a real human being. 
at all. Like Marty kind of does, but I think the script is even confused about who they want Marty to be because there's certain times where he's like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a rebellious eighties kids and I, I don't listen to authority, but he's also the kid who's like not drinking alcohol or smoking. And he's always like trying to do the right thing. And, and he's overall like a really good kid. And I'm like, well, what, what kind of a vibe are we going for here on Marty? I, I really don't understand it. But even going back to Marty's mom for a second, like, I don't feel like she's even portrayed as a real human being. You know, you described her as as cute. And like, I get all that. But, you know, at the end of the day, she's just really horny. Like, let's just be honest here. I Like, his mom is DTF. And the thing that bothers me about the way they present her isn't just that she's DTF. It's that, look, Brad, you and I have been teenagers You and I have interacted with teenagers. We understand how hormones work. We understand how attraction works. I have never seen a human female behave the way that she does towards Marty as a result of her attraction to him. Like, there is just no way that a human being is that transparent at all times with everyone that she wants to jump as bones. Right. Well, and here's the crazy thing. the script is just so bad that even when she finally does like force herself on Marty, her son, he looks at her just in abject horror, right? Because he just kissed his mom, which is probably one of the few normal things that happens in this movie. But, you know, Michael J. Fox is looking at her just terrified about what happened. And she pulls back and she doesn't acknowledge the fact that he's looking at her like she's a ghost. This is all wrong. I I don't know what it is, but when I kiss you, it's like I'm kissing my brother. I guess that doesn't make any sense, does it? Believe me, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, Brad, I think you're totally right. And we have, I don't know if I've even exhausted half of what I have to say about Zemeckis as a screenwriter, but I think we've gotten our point across. I do want to touch really quickly on Zemeckis, the director. This is a guy that came up as Steven Spielberg's sort of protege. And you see Steven Spielberg's influence all over Zemeckis's films. I mean, this one is especially, I think, egregious at copying Spielberg. You know, Spielberg was an executive producer on this film. I think he understood that this was going to make a ton of money, and it did. But even in that opening scene, where they're showing the clocks on the wall in Doc's workshop, and then the camera's moving all over the place. They really felt a lot like someone was trying to rip off Spielberg's directorial style, where there's constantly a camera moving. And even from the beginning, I just felt like I was really aware that this guy, Robert Zemeckis, was trying really hard to make a Spielberg-type movie, an old-school throwback adventure movie, you know, in the same vein that Spielberg tried to capture with Raiders of the Lost Ark, in the same vein that George Lucas tried to capture, you know, with American Graffiti and Star Wars. This was Zemeckis's old style serial adventure movie. And I just couldn't help but think the whole way through the movie that he just isn't up to par with guys like George Lucas and Steven Spielberg as a filmmaker. It just kind of struck me the same way as like, watching J.J. Abrams movie Super 8, where I was like, oh, you're clearly ripping off Spielberg and you're not as good as he is. That's what this movie felt like to me. Yeah, I I think it's amazing how you can watch this film. And and I totally agree. There's this feeling that I kind of got during E.T. of like you're trying to go for this nostalgic feel 
where the hero can feel good about himself and take care of others and bring reconciliation between others. And, and that that's, you know, that's kind of the feel that Zumeckis is going for. But Bob, the, the scary thing for me about this is that it's easy for me to get talking about this with you and just be like, yeah, we're just, we just watched it, did another bad movie bonus episode. But like, it's hard for me because I look at it and I go, we're talking about one of the more famous movies ever to be made. Like, I, I guess I just keep getting reminded myself that we are in the far minority to dislike a universally beloved movie. And to be honest with you, I'm a little bit worried that that might happen with our whiskey this week as well. Like, Jack Daniels is a pretty universally beloved whiskey that everyone drinks, but it's been a long time since I had it. And I'm a little nervous to try it, but I think it's time we get into it. Well, Brad, at this point, I will do anything to stop talking about this movie for a minute because I think I'm digging myself a very deep hole here. So you're right. Let's press pause and let's try this Jack Daniels. What do you say? I hope people come back for season three. So today we are checking out Jack Daniels Tennessee Whiskey. This is the most popular whiskey in the United States. Uh, Jack Daniels, I, I, I haven't checked the figures on this, Brad. I have no idea if this is accurate, but it's got to be one of the more famous whiskeys throughout the world. It is just an iconic brand, one that was made exponentially more famous in the 50s and 60s by Frank Sinatra. After he said this was his whiskey of choice, uh, he, he always took it on stage with him. And it came to have this certain sense of classiness associated with it during that time period. It has since become such a huge commercial juggernaut that it, it's just everywhere. And I feel like a lot of whiskey drinkers don't even talk about Jack or Jack Daniels products unless they're like the really high end ones, because it is just so ubiquitous, I guess. It's everywhere. And, and yeah. everyone has tried it at some point. Yeah, Bob, I mean, this is this is the whiskey that I was kind of formed on. Uh, it's the first whiskey that I ever had. And honestly, uh, my best friend Mike and I, we have a bottle of Frank Sinatra Select that we open and pour on very special occasions. So, yeah, the, you know, Jack Daniels has a history with me. I will admit, though, it has been a long time since I've had a glass of Jack Daniels. Well, I'm going to be even more honest with you, Brad. I can't remember if I've ever had Jack Daniels meat. I think I've only ever had it as a mixer or on the rocks, you know, like at huh. someone's house when they offer it to me. I can't remember if I've ever tried this in the same way that we try whiskeys on this show, which is neat out of a proper whiskey drinking glass. So I'm really excited to try this because I've never thought about it in the way that we typically talk about whiskey before. Yeah, well, I mean, for me, the connotation that I get with Jack Daniels has often been that of like a frat boy whiskey mm -hmm. that like, you, you know what I mean? That like college kids drink. And when you grow up, you'll you'll, you know, grow into a real whiskey, a real bourbon or scotch or, or something like that. And um, I will say like, there's nothing wrong with that either. 
and 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 it's not like we're trying to say that on this podcast. You know, like Brad, I don't really know a lot about vodka. If I was going to buy a vodka, I'm going to buy the vodkas that I know the name brands of. I'd buy a Smirnoff, I'd buy a Belvedere or a Grey Goose or a Tito's. Like those are just the ones that I know. And I feel like, you know, a lot of people don't know that much about whiskey. And so if you ask them to buy a whiskey, they're going to show up with a bottle of Jack Daniels because it's just that's what people associate with whiskey. Yeah. And and I can't blame them because from what I remember, it's a really good product. And I will say, having had this, the Frank Sinatra Select, man, that is some good stuff, my friend. Well, if you remember last week, we had Evan Williams Black Label and we said we were going to do a battle of the Black Labels to finish out our season. This particular whiskey, Jack Daniels, is not going to fit into our Springtime of Swill series because it costs too much money. And we do take value into consideration when we're scoring whiskeys. But I remember what I thought of that Evan Williams last week. And this week we are looking at an 80 proof whiskey again. So this is not a very high proof product. But Brad, I think it's time we get into offering our evaluation of this whiskey. So what are you picking up on the nose of this Jack Daniels? This might be the most vanilla um, scented whiskey I've had in a while. I, I really am picking up strongly a nice, soft, almost buttery vanilla flavor to it. Hmm. When my wife, I'm going to go on a tangent for a second. When my wife makes pancakes, she makes them like extra thick. They're just delicious. They're really great, hearty pancakes. And I always put peanut butter on my pancakes. Oh, heck yeah, dude. Yeah. And then I'll still put maple syrup on top of them because why not? Yeah. Because if you're going to taste like fat, candy, be fat, you know. But my wife has also started making banana pancakes a lot. And so I have this combination of flavors that I just, I, I mean, I go overboard on my pancakes. It's banana pancake with peanut butter and maple syrup. And when I smell this whiskey, Brad, I'm literally, I'm picking up banana, maple, and peanut butter. And it's, it's crazy. Like I kept smelling it and I'm thinking to myself, what is this? And all of a sudden it hit me. This smells like my wife's pancakes. And I really, really enjoy that. This is a, I don't know what the, what's the proper word for this, Brad? Decadent. It's like an overly sweet, rich smell that you don't get with a lot of whiskeys. And I'm really surprised that there's this much going on on the nose of a super mass produced 80 proof whiskey. Uh, I think the word you were looking for was bananas foster. <laughs> Not quite bananas foster. <laughs> I will say, though, having that thought in my mind, I took another another sniff. I don't get the maple syrup a ton. But this overwhelmingly smells like bananas mm. and it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I, I really enjoy it a lot. I'm going to give this a seven and a half on the nose, Brad. Did, I mean, is it the best thing I've ever smelled? No, but especially for a lower price whiskey that is this super mass produced. I am very impressed. Yeah, honestly, I, I'm going to give it an eight out of ten. I am really impressed with this. There's a lot going on. And it's one of the more unique scents that I've gotten in a while, which, like you said, is a lot to say about a mass-produced whiskey. All right, Brad, what do you say we give it a sip? Oh my gosh, Bob, that's so nice. Brad, this is significantly better than I expected it to be. All right, so let me just say this. It is pretty thin. It, it It's definitely an 80-proof whiskey. It's got some nice spice to it on the front, and I'm kind of shocked at how much of an alcohol tingle it brings with it for only being 80 proof. It definitely packs a punch, but all those things I picked up on the nose are here in the taste. It tastes almost like an overripe banana, like one that's kind of starting to go a little bit. 
There's definitely some peanut butter. There's definitely some maple. And then on that back end, it's lots of nice wood oak notes. Not super bitter, but it's definitely present. This is just from front to back, a really well put together whiskey, I think. I'm going to give it a seven on the taste. Bob, I'm going to go ahead and give it an eight on the taste as well. I think that on the palate is where this whiskey shines. You get just a beautiful mixture of that strong banana flavor mixed with a little bit of peanut butter, a little bit of vanilla, um, and then there's a little bit of spiciness to it. It it almost reminds me, uh, you you know, you, you spend all this time talking about pancakes. I prefer mine a little bit on the thin side. But a lot of times I will mix in a little bit of cinnamon mm-hmm. uh, and vanilla with my pancakes. And this is reminding me a little bit of that. There's some banana flavor. There's a tiny hint of cinnamon that I I am really impressed with. So that takes us to finish. I do think that, like I said, this definitely has those oak notes on the finish. It's pretty much just spices and oak. I don't really get a ton of baking spice on the finish. It gets more of just pepper. But again, it takes you from this really sweet forward note on the front of your palate to on the back end when you swallow, it's this really subtle and smooth transition to those wood grainy notes as well. And I really like that. I, it, nothing is really standing out to me as too drastic of a shift. Uh, the finish is really short. I don't really have much that lingers on my palate. And I think that's the big negative here. If this was a little bit higher proof, we'd probably get a little bit longer lasting finish. So this is probably, if I had to pick something to be the low point, this would probably be the low point of the whiskey for me, but I'm still going to give it a six and a half out of 10. I really enjoy this finish. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Bob. I'm going to give it a seven out of 10 on the finish. I, I think that is the weakest part of this experience, but it's still good. You still get some of that oaky, peppery notes. Um, it does dissipate pretty quickly. Um, but the burn does last for a, a minute longer than I think it would with an 80 proof. I, I like it. It's just not quite as good as the nose and the palate. All right. So that takes us to overall balance. This is where we talk about nose taste and finish put together. Brad, I think this is just a solid whiskey. This is really well put together. Like we said, the finish dips off a little bit. And if we're comparing it to the other whiskeys we've tried on this show, you know, it, it, it doesn't knock you off your feet. But it is just a solid whiskey, and I think I'm going to give it a seven and a half on the balance. I'm going to give it an eight and a half on balance, Bob. I think this is one of the better balanced whiskeys that we've had in a while. Now, granted, we've been going through the spring springtime of swill, and we love our swill, and we love paying less than fifteen dollars. But uh, at this price point, I think the biggest thing I'm noticing in the Battle of the Black Labels is that the the Evan Williams tasted cheaper than this. Yeah, for sure. And that this definitely has a step of, you know, it's a cut above in quality that I think you can really tell on the balance. Well, and I think that's a perfect segue into talking about value. Brad, I came into this week, if I'm being 100% honest with you, ready to rip this apart because it's more expensive than anything we had in the springtime of Swill and by by quite a large margin. And I kept thinking, oh, this is just marketing. This is Jack Daniels paying for all their sponsorships. It probably tastes just the same as anything else. And Brad, I got to say, you know, I think this is a way better value than I was expecting it to be. A fifth of this in the state of Ohio will cost you $21.99. So it's significantly higher than that $15 cutoff we made. And it's actually $10 more than the Evan Williams from last week. So almost double the cost of that. And yet, I think I would say that this is so much markedly better 
than Evan Williams that I think it justifies costing almost twice as much. And in the grand scheme of things, $22 is still not very much to pay for a bottle of whiskey. I think this is a pretty good value, and I'm going to give it a six and a half on value. <laughs> I, I'm i not going to lie. I was expecting a higher score than six and a half when you, when you described it. But I, I think that this is probably one of the better values that we've ever had on this podcast. Wow. I think $22 is right in that cheap range that I think is affordable for 90% of whiskey drinkers. I think it's a shame that this is known as a Jack and Coke uh, and not just drink neat because I actually think it's really good by itself. I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10 on value. Wow. I would buy. I would buy this at the $22 price range any day of the week. Now, if you told me that this was $28, $30, it, it would probably be like a five on value. But like, man, for $22, Bob, I've not seen many whiskeys in this specific price range that I like as much as this one. Okay, so here's the thing, Brad. We have had three Jack Daniels products on this show now. And last season, we had Gentleman Jack, which costs $28 for a fifth. And I can say this much about Gentleman Jack. We both kind of liked it, but I don't remember a darn thing about it. And I can say that this Jack Daniels, just the plain, regular, black label Jack Daniels, was a more memorable drinking experience for me than Gentleman Jack at $28. So this really is a good value. I think I'm probably skewed a little bit by coming off of the springtime of Swill, and by kind of going head-to-head against the Evan Williams. This is definitely way more money than the Evan Williams was. But here's the thing about Jack Daniels. You know, I keep saying that it's it's really mass-produced, as if that's a negative thing, but in some cases, being mass-produced actually can work in your favor. Because with something like Jack Daniels, they are blending so many barrels of whiskey together because it provides a way more consistent taste. So from bottle to bottle, you can expect that Jack Daniels is always going to taste like Jack Daniels because they're able to blend out any of those sort of imperfections that you would get with smaller batch or with single barrel whiskeys. And Brad, if this is what this tastes like 10 times out of 10, then it's a darn good whiskey. And that's bringing my final score out to a 35 out of 50. Brad, what's that bringing you out to? I'm at a 40.5. Wow. So that takes us to a 75.5 out of 100 or 37.75 out of 50. This is one of our higher rated whiskeys for the year. And the thing that really pains me, Brad, is that I know that there are people out there who consider themselves, you know, connoisseurs with their pinky up in the air, that when they see our score for Jack Daniels, they're going to turn their nose up at it. But the thing is, when you take into consideration what it is, the image that it has to overcome, the price point that it's working at, I think all of these things the the flavor of this is just absolutely overcoming those things. And I am super impressed with what we just drank. Bob, I am too. I, I think that I, I'm just going to repeat what I said earlier. It's really sad that, that people only think about Jack Daniels when they order a Jack and Coke. And maybe that's probably my bias because I don't like cola products, whether it's Pepsi, RC, Coke, whatever. But I, I think that this is a really beautiful whiskey to drink by itself. It's an easy sipper. It's not going to be super challenging. And it has a pretty unique flavor for being so mass produced. So I, I'm i going to wholeheartedly recommend that you guys go out and try some Jack Daniels neat. 
Well, Brad, what do you say we get back into talking about Back to the Future? I would rather talk about Jack Daniels. So that was Jack Daniels, a whiskey that we both wholeheartedly and kind of surprisingly recommend. I'm really, really pleasantly surprised by what just happened, Brad. I am less pleasantly surprised by watching this movie. And unfortunately, I have to hop back on the wagon that I was on before (laughs) and talk about how I dislike this film. The wagon that we were on. That's right. We're in this together. We're going down with the ship, I'm with you, man. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, if nobody listens to the podcast at the start of next season, we're going to know why, and I'm okay with it. I, I would rather be honest to myself about this movie. Last season, we ended with Rear Window, and the reason we did that is because it seemed like kind of a lighter, fun movie to end on, and we did the same thing this year, and I was expecting to have a breezy, easy conversation ahead of me. This... I do not enjoy talking crap about a movie that everyone loves, Brad, but I have to be honest about the fact that I just don't think this movie has held up super well. And we need to get into talking about some of the more problematic things in this movie, but we haven't really talked about any of the performances. So, Brad, aside from the fact that we said the characters are kind of cartoonish, did you think that the actors did a good job in this movie? I think that they did okay. Um, there there are certain performances that I thought were very underwhelming. I already started the the episode by saying I, I genuinely liked Michael J. Fox in this movie. He's he's super fun. He's super uh he's just easy to get along with as as a character. You know what I mean? Um his performance is charming and fun and it invigorates this movie with energy. But outside of that, I I don't know. A lot of people talk about loving Christopher Lloyd in this movie. I think that he has certain scenes where he's brilliant and then a lot of scenes where he's just eye rollingly corny and bad. Yeah, I I, agree. I don't know. What did I was going to say? What did you think about Christopher Lloyd in this? So the last scene where he's climbing the clock, I mean, part of that scene is an homage to an old silent movie called Safety Last with Harold Lloyd. And and I appreciated the reference that Zemeckis was making there. But then you have Doc Brown on top of this clock face and the bell starts ringing. And there's this whole 15 second sequence where it's just Doc Brown, like frightened by the clock and screaming. And I have no idea why they left that in the movie. Like there are just moments in his performance where he seems appropriately crazy at points And then there's other moments where they have him do things that are so nonsensical that it doesn't even really make sense for his character. I just I got the vibe from most of the characters in this movie that I just couldn't quite wrap my head around what they were supposed to be going for, because everyone is such a caricature. And like Crispin Glover has been good in other things. But even here as Marty's dad, it was like, oh, you're doing you're doing like the stereotypical revenge of the nerds type nerdy guy. And there's just really nothing new happening there. 
of all the people aside from Michael J. Fox that I thought did a good job, I would single out Leah Thompson as Michael J. Fox's mom. But even then, like when they cut to the 80s and they're supposed to be 40 somethings, the makeup is terrible. They're portraying, you know, late 40s adults as as if they're actually 80. And it's just like, I don't think anyone quite gets out of this movie spotless. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I totally do. I, I think I want to focus on that, that the lightning scene at the end of the movie for a second. That scene went on for so long, like literally thing after thing happened to keep them from being able to get him back to the future that just it was it was just so cringy, you know, and, and just little things like. Oh, the the tree branch falls and it and it breaks the electrical line up to the clock tower. And so, you know, Marty is supposed to get it back up to him. But I'm like, why didn't he take the tree branch off? Like, literally, my first thought as this was happening was like, oh, you got to pull the tree branch off and then pull it up. Because if you don't pull the tree branch off, there's no way it would get back up to the top. But somehow it does. And then the moment that Doc goes to put it together oh, now the tree branch is pulling on it and it's stopping him from being able to plug it in. And then Doc just, you know, slides his way on down with his gloves and then he attaches it right as the lightning is connecting it and he doesn't die because, you know, a 121 gigawatts of energy isn't going to kill him. Why would it? I, th- just so many parts of that scene, like, like there was a lot of eye-rolling stuff in this movie, but by the time it got to that part, I just couldn't take it anymore. Like it, it kind of felt like in The Hobbit when Legolas is playing Super Mario Bros and he's like jumping up the falling bricks of the bridge that he's on. Like that's how bad it felt to me watching that scene. Yeah, Brad, you're absolutely right. There are just some things in this movie that are really cringy. And then there are things in this movie that are cringy for another reason. And we we touched on this a little bit with our Breakfast Club episode. I think it's really ironic, Brad, just as an aside, that We have to talk about how much movies from the 80s are dated. But then when we go back and watch movies from like the 50s, they don't seem as dated. I don't know what it was about the culture of the 1980s. And we're going to get into talking about this. There is just such a mean spiritedness in this movie and in The Breakfast Club a little bit towards anyone that's not a white male. The only African-American character in this movie is treated as like almost like a buffoon, like he's just there to make kooky faces and react to what these crazy white people are doing. And then, you know, like you have Marty's mom, who is almost raped multiple times. Everyone in this movie is just taking advantage of the women around them. And it seems like the whole culture that this movie is trying to present, both in the 50s and in the 80s, is just so backwards and and so needs addressing. And I think that's the thing that that really frustrates me is you can't argue, well, it was just a different time. And like, yeah, maybe some things haven't aged well, because like I just said, we've reviewed movies from the 40s, from the 50s that have so much more respect for people of color and women than this movie that's only 30 years old does. And I think it deserves to be called out for something like that. Uh, Bob, I am right there with you. And, you know, I've mentioned this before on the podcast. I'm a little bit more conservative on the political spectrum. Bob's a little bit more liberal on the on the political spectrum. But I'm right there with you, Bob. I was watching this movie and they're they're using racial slurs at the end of the movie when they throw Marty into the trunk. 
And I'm just kind of like, whoa, like, where did that come from? Like, it just came out of nowhere. And I think the big thing is there's no need for it. It's just needless racism that's in the movie that the movie doesn't address. The movie doesn't talk about it. The movie doesn't condemn it. If anything, it portrays the 50s in this weirdly nostalgic sense of like, oh, yeah, the good old days when everything was simple and everybody was just simply racist and rapey. <laughs> I like I. Yeah, that's the I, thing I, is I, like I just you're, you're totally right, Brad. It tries to portray the 50s as this much better nostalgic period in history where everything was more innocent and. You know, Marty even comments on like how much cleaner everything looks and things like that. But they undermine the whole point they're making because the attitudes of the people in the 50s are so backwards. Like you have the school officials that are just standing by and letting Biff beat up whoever he wants. Biff walks into the I don't know what you want to call it, like the soda fountain and just takes over, turns off the jukebox, says he's going to beat somebody up in there. And it's just like all these adults are cool with letting the weakest people among them just get annihilated by this guy. Everyone turns a blind eye to the fact that he's like, hey, guys, go wait for me on the other side of the gym because I'm going to real quick rape this chick and I don't want you to watch while I do it. Right. He just goes, it's not a peep show. Yeah. I mean, and speaking of peep shows, like Marty's dad is a peeping Tom. Like there's just so much going on in this movie. That it's not just that I'm not okay with it. It's that, like, how is this played for laughs? How is this portrayed by the director as, like, a more innocent time and we can all laugh at that? I I just don't understand. And then you have even the layer of at the beginning of the movie when they're still in the 80s and Christopher Lloyd looks across the parking lot at this VW bus that's coming in and he goes, oh, no. And he goes, what? Marty goes, what? And he says, it's the Libyans. And then you have, like, this this Benny Hill type chase sequence where there's Libyan terrorists shooting a machine gun at Marty as like a slapstick moment. I was like, I understand that we live in a post 9-11 world, but like we're we're using terrorists as a, a, a piece of comedy now. Like what is going on in this movie, Brad? Yeah, I, Bob, I these were the big problems that I had with the movie. Like when you get beyond the flaws in the script and the acting and the direction, you find yourself smack dab in the middle of racism and rape culture and boys will be boys and just do whatever they want. And, and somehow the common world is just okay with this. Like Vox is an extremely liberal website and I'm reading a review from them. That's calling it like the greatest film of all time. And I'm like, you know, the things that we're talking about, Bob, you said at the start, they they seem to be more typically, you know, left leaning problems that people would bring up, like racism in movies and sexism in movies and things like that. And yet even the liberal like news outlets are like heaping praise upon this film. Like I'm a pretty right of center guy and I'm seeing this stuff like how is this just overlooked? I really genuinely am flabbergasted, and I'm going to repeat what I said at the start of the podcast. Please go back and watch this movie and just, I don't know, tell me if I'm wrong. Because I, I, I feel like it's really obvious how many problems are in this movie. But, Bob, we might just be crazy because I don't think many people see this film the way that we do. Brad, you know, earlier in the podcast, I said that I wish this movie had been done by Zemeckis in his 
who framed Roger Rabbit kind of mindset. And the more I think about it, the more I think this movie would have been more successful as a completely animated movie, you know, animated in the sort of style that we saw in a movie like The Iron Giant. I think in that context, the overacting, the really broadly drawn characters makes way more sense. The way that he has people behave on camera would make way more sense if they were animated characters. But even then, I still don't think that it would make up for some of these really poor decisions when it comes to the attitudes they're taking towards certain people in the film. I really couldn't get past those things, Brad. And it's not just that, you know, we have a better understanding of rape culture or whatever in 2020. It's just that it seems like the solution to everything in this movie isn't a more advanced way of thinking. It's like, you know, how does how does George McFly win at the end of the day? He beats up Biff. And so he becomes the new Biff, basically. And at the end of the movie, he's portrayed as like this rich, cocky guy because he got his confidence back by beating up Biff and putting Biff in his place. And it's like, yeah, Biff deserved to be put in his place. But isn't there a way that we could portray this that it doesn't involve someone just getting bloodied up? I just I don't understand how this movie is held up as such a like family friendly classic, because I feel like I would have to explain so much to my kids if we turned this yeah. movie on. And so, Brad, that's going to take me to my final score. I don't really to be honest with you, I don't really care to talk anymore about this movie. Like <laughs> uh, I, I disliked it and I was really shocked at how bad I thought parts of it were. Do I think parts of it were really entertaining? Absolutely. You know, like you said, that last sequence on the clock tower, it's dragged out, but it's also probably the best put together sort of action sequence in the whole movie. And I appreciated parts of that. But Brad, if I'm being honest with you, I came into today thinking maybe I'll give this movie a seven. And the more I talk about it, the more I'm thinking like, no, I really disliked this movie way more than that. And I'm I would only be giving it a six and a half or a seven because I think that people love it a lot and I don't want to catch too much crap. But at the end of the day, I got to be honest, Brad, I think this movie is like a five and a half out of 10 for me. Bob, I, I'm, I'm going to do you one worse. Uh, the more I talk about this film, the more I think about what I saw. From a technical standpoint, it's not well written. It's not a perfect script. It might be one of the worst scripts we've seen on the Film and Whiskey podcast. And when you throw on top of that all of the casual racism and and rape culture, I think this is genuinely an actively bad movie. Um, I'm going to give it a three and a half out of ten. Wow. I, I just, I'm really worked up about this, I, you know, and maybe maybe I would actually give it a four and a half, but I'm, I'm really bothered by this movie right now, and I don't know how it came to hold such a dear place in America's heart. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, we talked about The Breakfast Club and how there were things in that movie that needed to be put in context that that I think should be cut out of the movie. You know what I mean? If we, if we were going to go back like George Lucas and revise all the movies, that scene in The Breakfast Club where he's looking up her skirt is really, really cringy. And yep. the thing is, I saw 10 times the amount of articles written about that scene in The Breakfast Club than I see written about anything in Back to the Future. And I think that that sort of outdated, oppressive culture is so much more represented in Back to the Future than it ever was in The Breakfast Club. Like, you can expect some things to be outdated after 30 years, but this isn't just outdated. This is just the wrong way of looking at people and at things. But in the end, 
as much as I don't want to say this because I know how much flack we're going to catch for our opinions on this movie, we will, as always, finish our podcast by offering to you, our listeners, we want to hear what you have to think. I'm going to backpedal a little bit. I don't think you're a bad person if you like this movie. Absolutely not. Uh, we, we, we can agree on that, right, Bob? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think that this is genuinely a fun, interesting time travel adventure movie. I, I can see why people like it. And if you don't see the same stuff in it that we see, that's okay. Um, we, we don't normally come across with such strong opinions on the morality of movies. So, you know, if you like this movie, we're not calling you a bad person. I, I, I want to emphasize that. Um, but. Let us know. Uh, we are on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram at Film Whiskey. Let us know what you're thinking. Or you could give us a call. Call our call in line and leave us a voicemail. The number is 216-800-5923. Once again, that's 216-800-5923. You can also leave us a message by looking in the show notes of all of our episodes. Our new podcast host, Anchor, has a service where you can click and record a message that will be sent to us immediately. So if you don't want to call the call in line, you can also just check the show notes, go to Anchor and record a message for us there. Bob, this is it. Normally uh, <laughs> you say next week we're going to be reviewing this, yeah. but but this is the the end of season two. This is the weirdest way to end a season I can possibly imagine. But Brad, it's not yeah. completely done yet. Next week we will be back with the tradition that we established last season and my favorite part of this whole podcast we will put all 32 movies from this season in a March Madness style bracket and determine what the best movie of season two was. So please join us next week for two bonus episodes as we march our way through this bracket. And as always, whenever there is a tie to be had, the coin of destiny shall decide a movie's fate. I can't wait. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. 